The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to direct your attention to John chapter 15. And I'm going to read verses 12 to 16. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may this book live. May you speak through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. And pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, elucidate my thoughts as I seek to lead your people for Christ's honor. Amen. One of the things that my father used to tell me a lot growing up, especially in high school, is this phrase, to whom much is given, much is required. You ever heard that before? In a sense, that's what Jesus is saying here to his disciples. Remember, Judas has already left to go and betray our Lord, and Jesus has the 11. They're either in the upper room or they're on their way to the Mount of Olives. It's, it's hard to tell exactly where they are, but it's in these fleeting hours right before Jesus is going to be arrested and go to the cross. And Jesus is telling his disciples, look, you've been given an immense blessing. And because of that, much will be required of you. And what will be required of you is this, that you love one another. That's going to be the requirement. It's interesting. You know, you think about what are the outward distinct marks of Christ's disciples, of a a true church. You would say, well, I would think of orthodox doctrine. I would think of right worship according to the Word of God. I would think of of spirit-led evangelism, of people that want to see people come to know Christ. I would think of mercy ministries to the poor and and, and, uh, help in that way. But what Jesus says is to mark his disciples, mark the true church. If you look over in in John chapter 13, just flip the page and look at verse 35. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. And let me give you two cross references. John the apostle picks this up. This is 1 John 
he says this, we know that we have passed out of death unto life because we love the brothers. That means the, the, the Christians, the brethren. Whoever does not love abides in death. Do you hear that stark contrast? If you don't love other believers, John says, you're not a Christian. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He says a few verses later, jot down this verse, 1 John 4, 7, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and known God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So the litmus test of whether or not you are a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, the Apostle John says is this, do you love Jesus' people? Have you ever heard somebody say, well, I love Jesus, but I really don't want anything to do with the church? Have you ever heard that before? John says, not so fast. That doesn't exist. You, you, if you love me, you will love God's people. And what Jesus says here in verse 35 is that this love is to define our relationships with other Christians. With other born-again Christians, we are to be known by our love. And sadly, how many times have we seen again and again and again this not to be the case? Where you have churches split right down the middle and Christians start saying things about one another where there's slander and gossip and rudeness and, and, uh, and people unwilling to forgive. Have we, have we seen this before? It happened to me in a, in a church that I grew up in, sadly. And it's a terrible thing. But Jesus says, look, you are to be known by this quality, your love for other believers. Now turn back to John 15, and I want you to see this command. Look at verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Remember the context, Jesus has told his disciples to abide in him, and the way that they are to abide in him is by walking in dependence upon him and by walking in obedience to his commands. It's that simple. You want to abide, you walk in obedience, you walk in dependence. Well, Jesus says, look, if you are going to walk in obedience, if you're going to be obedient to my commands, remember the main one. Remember the main command that I have given and that is that you love one another. If you turn back again, I'm, I'm sorry I'm doing this to you, playing Bible drill, but turn, turn back again to, to 13 and look at verse 34. Go here and back again. It's like the, what is that, the hobbit? Um, verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you. Now this is not new in the sense that it's the first time it appears in the Bible. We, we were told to love our neighbors going all the way back to Leviticus. Over, over and over again, we're told to, to, to love each other. It's new in the sense that Christ is giving this command now, and it's also new in the sense that it has the picture of the cross in mind. Okay, so 
look at verse 34. He says, this is my commandment, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Question, who's the one another? Who's the one another? I think if you were to ask, if you, if you were to have a little home Bible study and you were to sit around and you were to say, okay, who is Jesus talking about? You would hear from somebody in the group, well, he's talking about everybody. He's talking about we're to love everybody. We're, we're, we're to, to give a, a general love to everybody in the world. Isn't that what Christians are to do? Well, sure. We're, we're to have a, a general love for, for each person. You remember what Micah the prophet says? He says, oh man, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before your God? There's a sense where we are to have mercy and love towards everybody, yes. But what Jesus is talking about here, and, if, and it's very clear from verse 35, look at this. He says, people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The one another refers to the other disciples. He's saying this, this love that I'm commanding you to is a special, distinct love that you are to have towards other Christians. Paul says in Galatians 6.10, he says, and this captures it well, he says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there is a special love that you are to exhibit and display to other Christians that you don't display to any Joe Smuckatelli. It's a special and unique love that we are to have for other evangelical believers. Now, this is an interesting command here for us to think about because in this country, which has been essentially Christianized, going back to our founding in the 1600s and then 1776, this nation was settled by Christians. There's numerous people that claim to be a Christian, but aren't in fact a Christian. So we need to think carefully. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you love the brothers. You love one another. Now, there's going to be many people that say, hey, I, I, I'm a Christian. You need to show that type of love to me. We all just need to, to, to wrap arms around each other and sing kumbaya, and, it's, and it really doesn't matter what you believe or what I believe or what, what ethic you practice or what ethic I practice. There's a lot of that going on today. So I was really helped in thinking about this. I was going back and reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, What is an Evangelical? And he lists 13 qualities of a true Christian, of an evangelical Christian. Now, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones' Jones's opinion, but I thought it was helpful. So let, let me give these to you because it'll be helpful to think about, okay, this is the, ty this is the type of person that we are, we are to express love to. He said the first quality... The first quality of this type of person is that they are totally subservient to the Word of God. They hold up the Word of God and, and they put their life underneath it. Second, he said, being a born-again Christian is their primary identity. It's their primary identity. They're not first, oh, I'm a Baptist or I'm a Methodist or I'm a Presbyterian or I'm an Anglican. They understand that their, that their foremost identity is that of a born-again Christian. 
Third, they are watchful. They are watchful. By that, he means they are discerning. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 5, be sober-minded. One of my DB coaches in high school used to say, keep your head on a swivel, looking for receivers that are running by that you, that you might need to cover. You need to be watchful. And that is the mark of a, of a true Christian. The devil, our adversary, is, is like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and we are on the watch. Fourth, the evangelical trusts the Bible over philosophy and science. Science might say, earth is two billion years old. That's not what the Bible says. I go with the Bible over what the geologist says. Or the psychologist might say, you know what? Your gender is not congruent with your sexuality. You can be born a male, but you can identify as something. No, 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 no. The Bible says, in the beginning, he made man in his image, male and female, he created them. So the evangelical says, I hold up the Bible versus philosophy and science. Fifth, the evangelical Christian uses reason in service to Scripture. And this is a direct quote from Lloyd-Jones. He said, reason must never determine what we believe. The business of reason is to teach us how to believe. We believe the Bible. As R.C. Sproul says, if the Bible says it, that settles it. Six, the evangelical only accepts two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's a distinction there between Roman Catholicism and true Christianity. Seven, the evangelical does not accept tradition wholesale, but filters everything through the Word of God. That's sola scriptura. We don't just say, oh, because the church has done this in the past that we, that we necessarily have to do it because the church at times has been proven wrong on things. So sola scriptura says not that we throw out tradition, but that tradition is filtered through what the Bible says. Eight, an evangelical is a person who is willing to act on their convictions. One of the things that, that is different between a theological liberal and a evangelical Christian, what I believe a born-again evangelical Christian, is that a theological liberal bases everything on experience. They say, you know what, it really doesn't matter what you believe about Christ, the resurrection, the Bible, it really doesn't matter. The question is, do you have an experience with Christ? The evangelical says, no. All true experience is built on the foundation of the Word of God. If you get the doctrine wrong, you get false expressions of experience. So it has to be based on right conviction. So you start with the conviction, you stand for the conviction, and then you get the right experience. Nine, an evangelical Christian is someone who appreciates simplicity in worship. They want the word of God. They're not into, they don't need vestments and fancy liturgies and you know, priests coming forward with just you know, fire and smoke and incense. They don't, we don't need that. Give me the Bible. Is the, is the heart of a true Christian. 10, the evangelical Christian is someone who emphasizes the new birth and the new life in Christ because we are concerned about sanctification. 
that Christianity is a new life, and therefore we progress in becoming more like Christ. 11, the evangelical Christian is someone who desires to see God work on a grand scale. We would call that an awakening or revival. We want God to work. We want God to save sinners. We want God to bring this nation to repentance. 12, the evangelical Christian loves biblical preaching. They love to sit underneath the Word of God because they know that it's through the teaching, preaching, proclamation of the Word of God that the Holy Spirit begins to work. God's Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, begins to cut into your soul as you sit under the right teaching of the Word of God. And then 13th, the evangelical Christian loves to share the gospel and the plan of salvation. The evangelical Christian believes that God's gospel is the true power of God unto salvation that God saves sinners and bring, brings them from death to life. And I give you these qualities because we need to be discerning. We need to think carefully about this command. We are called to love other believers, other born-again believers. So we need to be thinking, okay, who is God calling me to love? And, and many commentators would say, that the degree that someone exhibits the qualities of a true Christian is the degree that your love and your affection should grow for them. So it's not just, oh, I, I claim to be a Christian. Use discernment as you're thinking through these things about, the, about whom we are to love. Now, what type of love does Jesus say that we are to give? Look at verse 13. This is love defined. Jesus defines it for us, so it's crystal clear. Greater love has no one than this. So no man possesses a greater love than this, Jesus says, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The word love, well-known Greek word, agape, speaks to sacrifice, to cherish something, to have affection for something. And throughout the New Testament, that word agape is used to describe the love of God that he has for his children. Let me give you some, some cross-references. Romans 5.5, 5. God's love, God's agape love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Ephesians 2.4, Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. 2 Thessalonians 3.5 says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And then 1 John 4.16, the apostle John says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. It's the essence of his character. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So it's a sacrificial love. It's the love that God has for his children. It's the love that God has for the Christian. And the way that it's expressed, if you look at that second phrase there in verse 13, someone laid down his life for his friends. That's the expression of it. That's what it looks like. Notice the willingness, the willingness to lay down what is most valuable. Is there anything more valuable that you can give than, than a life? No, there's not. It's being willing to lay down voluntarily what is most precious and dear to you, which is 
life itself. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus came on a rescue mission to save sinners. You in a million years, because of your sin, could not be forgiven by God. You could not be counted just by God. Even if you tried to live a perfect life, even if you decided at age 40 to say, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be perfect from here on out, that would not deal with the reality of your sin. And God as a just God is bound to be just and bound to punish those who break his law. And so therefore, every single person deserves divine judgment, deserves hell. And so the Lord Jesus Christ came on this rescue mission. He lived a perfect, righteous life. That's why when John the Baptist was gonna baptize him, John was confused. He's like, why would I baptize you? Jesus said, it's for what reason? To fulfill all righteousness. In other words, my life is going to be identified with these sinners, but I'm I'm living it perfectly. And he lived a perfect, righteous life under the law. And then he went to the cross, and he laid down his life. Here in this text, he's going to Gethsemane. He's not taken, taken off guard by the, by the temple guard and Judas coming. This is all part of his plan. Listen to what our Lord says. This is John 10, 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Paul reminds us in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I want you to just think for a second about the love that Christ displayed. Maybe you're going through a difficult time, a dark time. It's important for you to think about as a child of God that Christ loved you so much that he went to the cross and laid down his life for you. And in the shadow of the cross, Jesus is reminding his disciples of this. There's no greater love that anyone else will ever have than the love that I'm about to display. Going to Gethsemane, being arrested, going to the cross. This is the greatest love. No greater love than this. And this definition of love, I think, has prevailed for the past 2,000 years. If you want to talk about love and people think about love, This is the highest love that you could possibly think about is the sacrifice of one's life. When I was at Texas A&M, I was in the Corps of Cadets, and if you were, uh, did something, you know, kind of silly during the week, they would give you a marching tour on Saturday, and you would go down to the front of the, the front of the quad where all the barracks were, the very front, and they had a big, big square, and you would have to march there back and forth. And on that square, there was a memorial And that memorial was to all the men who had given their life, paid the ultimate price uh, as as veterans in the military. And interestingly enough, my father's name was was, uh, on that memorial. There's a verse at the very bottom of the memorial underneath all the names, and it's this verse, John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life his friends. You see, Jesus became the ultimate example. It's the ultimate example of love. I was in a military science class my sophomore year, naval science. And this 
retired general came to speak to the class. His name was General Charles Krulak, four-star, commandant of the Marine Corps. Uh, this guy was a, uh, is, uh, I mean, he- heavy hitter. And I, I couldn't believe that he came and talked, I mean, to us, like 30 midshipmen in the, in the naval science class. And he told a story, and, and basically it was, it was during Vietnam, and they were doing a mission up near the DMZ, and there was a, uh, a, a valley, and the, he said the valley was about 600 yards long, maybe two, 300 yards wide, just rice paddies all in the valley, uh, ridges on either side, and on the, uh, on the uh, east side, there was a, uh, basically a, a, a gully, a little, a little creek bed. And they, their whole company gets dropped off in this valley, and he's the company commander. Krulak's the company commander. And immediately, they, after the, the helicopters pick up, they come under fire with a 50 caliber machine gun out in the, on, on the, the, other, the other side of the valley. And Krulak and, and the rest of the, the company, the other two platoons, basically ran over to that little river gully. But that other platoon was just lying down in, in the rice fields, and that 50 caliber machine gun was going one by one and shooting every single guy. And so Krulak said, I got on the radio, I, I called for... Um, uh, another lieutenant, a guy by the name of Oliver North. You ever heard of that name? And uh, he said, I want you to go around and I want you to, to, to flank him and, and take out that, that machine gun, but this is going to take some time. So, they, so Oliver North and that, that platoon goes out to try to, to flank the machine gun. And meanwhile, this is going on in the middle of the, the, the rice field. And he said, all of a sudden, this Lance Corporal, uh, a young African-American Marine, from Crump, Tennessee, from Crump, Tennessee, gets up, and he basically pulls a Rambo, and he starts running back and forth, just kind of zigzagging, and drawing the attention of the, the gunners to him. And while he's doing this, the rest of the platoon gets up and starts to, to move away, but he just starts running and zigzagging, and that 50 caliber starts tracing on him, getting closer, closer, closer. Finally, hits him. Bam. Knocked on his back. You know, 50 caliber bullets like that big. And Krulak said, I thought, you know, he's done. Uh, he's he's going to lay down. We need to get the paramedics to him. Well, then he gets up again, charges, goes towards the gun, basically ends up taking it out. Finally, after this little thing was over, they found Lance Corporal Grable draped over that machine gun and shot five times, a 50 caliber. And... Seven months later, when Krulak was stateside, he gave that young man's wife a Navy Cross, which is our nation's second highest award. She was holding a little baby that Grable had only seen in a Polaroid picture. So let me ask you a question. 
what motivated him? Is it love for his country? Ah, uh-uh. sure, we all love our country. Everybody has patriotism. But what motivates that type of action is love for your brothers. And says, you know what? I'm not going to let that gun take out my, my buddies. Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. So guess what? Listen to this verse. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Listen, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Christ laid down his life for you. This is his command to you, Christian. This, and, and guess what? We're not in a military conflict. We're in a spiritual conflict. We are in a spiritual battle of epic proportions, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Christ. And what does Christ call us to? To love the brothers, so much so that we would be willing to lay down our lives for them. What do you think would happen if a church started living like that? If that was our mentality towards the other believers in the life of the church, that I will give my life for that person. That's how much I love that person. That's how much I'm willing to go out of the way and minister to that person. If that happens, I mean, the New Testament's crystal clear. Truth becomes championed in that church, 1 Corinthians 16. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Sin is diminished in the life of the church. Romans 13, 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Patience is increased with one another. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So the question is, I, I know you're, you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh my goodness, how am I supposed to conjure up this type of love for a brother and sister in Christ? Well, one, John says, think about the love of Christ for you. That's your starting point. But then I, I actually think that there's a, there's a secret to this in Philippians. In uh, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, this is Philippians 2.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do you see that? Humility. Humility, looking to other people's interests more than the interests of your own. Now look at verse five. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not of deity, but by taking on the form of a servant, taking on our flesh, being born in the likeness of men. So Christ displayed humility in taking on our humanity. And that's where this love begins. It begins with humility at the foot of the cross, humility before a holy God. And that humility says, I will not put my own interests ahead of myself, ahead of others. 
I will put others' interests ahead of myself. And then you see the love of Christ for you, and that propels you forward to act in love for brothers and sisters. So that's the type of love, if you turn back to, to John 15, that's the type of love that Jesus says we are to have. We're to have this, this agape love. And then to, to help us understand this more, he reminds us that we are the recipients of this love, that we are love's recipients. Look at verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, Jesus is saying here that you have a special relationship to, to me. I count you my friends. And that phrase, if you do what I command you, is not a contingent phrase. In other words, uh, you are my friends if, if you obey. Rather, it's a phrase of demonstration. He says, you show that you are my friends through your obedience, Obedience is not what makes you his friend. Obedience is the evidence that you are his friend. So therefore, obedience is very important to understanding our relationship to the, to the Lord. If you don't obey his commands, don't dare call yourself his friend because we must obey. Now, implied in this statement of Jesus, look at this statement, you are my friends. Implied in this statement is a special love that Jesus has for his disciples. Does Jesus count everyone in the world his friends? No, he does not. Does Jesus have a special love for some that he does not have for others? Yes. Yes, he does. Absolutely. This word friend is the word philos. It means beloved, it's where we get our word uh, Philadelphia, city of brotherly, brotherly love or philosophy, which is the love of wisdom. If you look at verse 19, it's the same word, Greek, Greek uh, verb form, um, where Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you. There it is, phileo, as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He's saying, if you were like the world, the world would show affection for you, the world would be your friend, the world would, would care for you, but because you're not, the world hates you. So this is a special term that our Lord uses to describe his children. What a wonderful thing to think about, that Christ counts these 11, and I think all future disciples by implication, his beloved his friends, the ones that he esteems. Have you ever met somebody famous, like really famous, and then later on you were tempted to say, you know, Tony Romo and I, we're friends. We're friends. You know, we have each other's numbers and that sort of thing. We're friends. You know, you're... You're wanting to, to, to hold yourself up and say, okay, I'm, I'm like on the, on the level of that person. So it's, it's, a, it's a thing, in all, in all actuality in the Scriptures, nobody, nobody ever calls Christ their friend or God their friend. It's, it's always the other way around, where Christ calls people his friends, where God calls people his friends. And it's, it's a wonderful thing when somebody of a high station, this is just 
This is just natural human response. Counts you their friend, shows you affection. I love, there's a picture in, in Ian Murray's biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones where Martin Lloyd-Jones is meeting young Queen Elizabeth. And you can just see there's just such a smile on his face as he's standing there before the queen. And, and there's a sense where when Jesus says this, that we're to feel that, that, that this is a, a warm greeting, a, a warm title that he is giving to his disciples, that he is given, giving to us, that we are called friends. And, and Jesus has a special love for his friends. I'm not going to have you turn there, but listen to what he says when he prays in the high priestly prayer. John 17, verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He says in John 17, 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So Jesus has a special love for his children. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. Okay. Verse 15, look at that word servants. It's the... Greek word doulos, it does not mean servant. That, that is a translation to uh, avoid all the, the, the red tape and everything that's happened in America with chattel slavery. The word is doulos. There's lots of words that you could use for servant. Diakonos, where we get our word deacon. Huperetes, lots of words that you could use for servant. This is not one of those words. This is the word Slave. Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. Uh, now you get the picture. Does the master tell the slave his prerogative? Does the, does the master tell the slave the why? No, he does not. He says, you, you, you just obey. You follow my commands. You don't need to know. And Jesus is saying, listen, in terms of information, I'm bringing you into the inside track. We're gonna, we're gonna do inside baseball. I am going to tell you the broad scope of redemptive history. I'm going to tell you all of the plans that God has for me, for the kingdom, my future death, the resurrection, my ascension to the Father. He's already told them that he is going to the Father, that he is returning again, that he's sending the Holy Spirit. He's revealing them to them the Father's plan. And that's what friends are given. They're given inside information. That's what Jesus means. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about Christianity is that we're not left to guess. We're not left to guess what the future has in store. We know how history ends. Christ is going to return. Christ will judge the living and the dead. We will then be judged according to our actions, be given heavenly rewards. Satan will be thrown into hell forever, and all those who refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know how history ends. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You know. You know. And that's what it means to be a friend, is you have that inside information. And I love that. I love having the Christian worldview. And, and Christ, as your friend, has given that to you as a precious gift. Now, here's a question. Jesus says, I call you friend, no longer slave. Does that mean that we are not slaves to Christ? Does that mean that we just, you know, we put on that shirt, Jesus is my homeboy? Is that, is that what, is that the, you know, is that the, the extent of the relationship? Uh-uh, uh-uh. You, you, Jesus is curious. He's Lord. And we are still doulos, slaves. This is John 13, 16. This is where Jesus calls the disciples slaves. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Paul calls himself a slave, Romans 1, 1. He says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Galatians 1.10, he says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. In Ephesians 6.6, he says, all Christians are slaves. He says, as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. We are all slaves of Christ. 2 Timothy 2.24, he says, all in Christian ministry are slaves. He says, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And then Paul even said that he was a slave to other Christians, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. So we're still a slave. We're still a slave. He is still Lord, but yet he calls us friend. And he gives us the inside information. He lets us know the divine will of God. So Jesus explains first, he goes, you're commanded to love. What type of love? This sacrificial love. By the way, you disciples are the recipients of this sacrificial love. Now right there, we're like, oh man, there's a temptation to pride. I'm Jesus's friend. They're not. Oh, I'm Jesus' friend. I'm so great. I'm so wonderful. It's, it's about me. I'm just better, maybe. I don't know. Why, why am I Jesus' friend? And Jesus says, stop it right there. You were foreordained to be my friend and to receive the love. Here's the humility check right here. Here, here's the, the pride blocker, okay? Look at verse 16. This is, this is a, as I say, a nursing home verse. Where you're sitting there at the nursing home and, and eating your, your spaghetti, thinking about something. You can think about this verse. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Oh, my goodness. So you're saying, Jesus, that this love that you have for me, that you've called me your friend, you've given me the inside information, you've given this sacrifice of your son, you've done all these things, and that this love was predicated on nothing about me? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. 
You did not choose me. I chose you. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. That word choose is a word that means to appoint, to designate, to set aside, to choose for oneself. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians 1.4 when he says, he, the Father, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his, of his will. And then James uses the same word, James 2, 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? So God chooses, Christ chooses whom he will give this love to. And it's not on the basis of your work. It's not on the basis of you choosing Christ. Some people try and turn this around. Well, you know, Jesus chose me because I would choose him. No, 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 no. Jesus is saying it's, it's not that. You did not choose me. I chose you. I chose to set my love and affection upon you. So right there, what you are supposed to do is you are to take a step back and you are to marvel at the love of God. God chose to love you because he loved you. That's it. He loves you because he loves you. He chose to love you and to set his affections upon you. And therefore, what can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Their height, their depth, principalities or powers, no created thing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And by the way, you can't boast in this either. You can't, you know, I carried Billy Graham's bags around for a while and Jesus must have seen that, that's why he loved me. Uh-uh, uh-uh. And you, I mean, the testimonies we heard today testify to that. I live my life for the devil Jesus chose me. He loves you because he loves you. So therefore, you get the picture of love now? It's sacrificial. It's to a specific people. And it's foreordained. So if you understand God's love then for you, now you are equipped to go and love one another. How much has God loved you in Christ? An infinite amount. He gave his only son. Christ loved you. He went to the cross for you. Now he calls you to go give your life for the brethren. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this heart-reaching text that confronts us with something so wonderful the love of God for us in Christ Jesus, the love of Christ, which is sacrificial, given to his friends, foreordained. And Lord, we pray that as a response to this, that we as obedient children, obedient Christians, would obey your command. And Lord, I pray that you would do a special work in the life of this church, that this church people would be 
going out of their way to serve one another, to lay down their lives for one another. I pray, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would be obedient to this command, that you would do this, and that our church would be known for its love. We ask all this for your honor and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.